2: The following podcast is based on actual X Files cases.
3: The X Files have been closed. All files have been locked away in the pentagon vaults.
0: I've secretly been given access to these files.
2: This is X-Files Truth.
1: You were abducted, Samantha. I can help you to remember. I don't want to, Fox. I don't. Why come here at all? My father told me that he'd found you. He wanted to
0: see me very badly.
1: That you'd been looking for me for a long time.
0: Please tell me you're here with severe chest pain. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Redo 2. X-File Number Classified. The Plot. After hearing of Scully collapsing, Mulder arrives at the hospital where Scully is being treated. Before he's able to make contact with her, he's detained by Skinner and two FBI agents. Mulder is then brought to Blevins and a senior agent who demands information on why Scully lied about Mulder's death. After the meeting, Mulder tells Skinner that a traitor in the FBI gave Scully her cancer. In the meantime, the smoking man has a meeting with the First Elder, trying to convince him that Mulder will join their side if he's given a good reason to do so. I trust you've heard.
1: Mulder is alive. As I said, it's not to be underestimated. Yes, as you said. Though I hear he has you to thank in some part for his new freedom.
3: Using a stolen ID, Mulder was able to get inside the advanced research projects facility.
1: And you allowed him to escape? Yes. We're too vulnerable. Our man in the FBI is exposed. What Mulder may have seen could expose our plans... What Mulder's seen only serves us. It serves to ensure our plans.
3: Mulder's in trouble.
2: He needs help. We can give it to him.
1: In exchange for? His new loyalty to us. As I've said all along, Mulder's much more valuable to us alive. You can proceed now.
0: Mulder later tells Scully that he wants to reveal the conspiracy to the public. As he's leaving, he meets with the smoking man who tells him that he can cure Scully's cancer by using a chip included in the vial Mulder took from the Pentagon.
1: Please tell me you're here with severe chest pains. You should be glad for why I'm here. Pay you some respect. Go to hell your cleverness and your resource, what you managed to do for Scully. What are you talking about? Well, breaching the security at the Defense Department facility, finding the cure for her disease. What I found was useless. On the contrary. It's essential to her survival.
3: If you like, we could
1: step outside and I might explain myself. I'm here tonight as a friend, Agent Mulder. You promised me to be in here. I'll be damned. It never occurred to me what the deionized water might be for. Who knew it was a microchip we were looking for? This is a cure for cancer? It may be for skullers. How? Shortly after she was abducted, she discovered a small metallic chip implanted subcutaneously in her neck. It was just a short time after she had it removed that she developed cancer. It's unreal. Too freaking amazing. Watch your language, Frohich, and Grab me some tweezers.
0: Meanwhile, Kritschgau goes before the FBI panel, denying any knowledge of Osselhoff's murderer, also revealing that his son died that morning. Kritschgau claims to work not only for the Department of Defense but also a congressional lobbying firm known as Rausch. Mulder sees Scully and her doctor about the chip. Scully's family is skeptical, particularly her brother Bill, who is quite upset with Mulder. Scully decides to go ahead and have the chip inserted into her neck. The smoking man contacts Mulder, arranging a meeting at a nearby diner. There, Mulder meets his sister Samantha, who calls the smoking man her father. Samantha claims to not remember anything about her abduction and is reluctant to stay or tell Mulder where he can find her.
1: You were abducted, Samantha. I can help you to remember. I don't want to, Fox. I don't why come here at all? My father told me that he'd found you. You wanted to see me very badly. That you'd been looking for me for a long time. Is that true? (laughs) I'm so sorry, Fox. And I wish that I'd know on how to find you. What you've been told. I want you to listen to me, okay? What you've been told by that man may not be true. Why do you say that? Because the man that brought you here has known where I've been for a very long time. I don't understand. Why wouldn't he tell me? I don't know.
0: But I think he's kept a lot of things from you.
3: I don't believe you.
0: The next day, the smoking man offers Mulder the truth if he quits the FBI and comes to work for him. Mulder refuses. Mulder later meets with Blevins, who now has evidence Skinner was withholding information concerning the Oselhoff death. Blevins tells Mulder he can help him if he names Skinner as the traitor in the FBI. Later, Mulder meets with Scully, telling her he was going to make the deal with the smoking man, but will not after his meeting with Blevins. Despite Scully's pleas, he refuses to name Skinner as the traitor in the FBI. Mulder meets with the FBI panel, while Quiet Willie follows the smoking man with a sniper rifle equipped with silencer, telescopic sight, and targeting laser. Mulder tells the panel of the conspiracy against him and Scully. Go on, Agent Mulder.
1: Four years ago, while working on an assignment outside the FBI mainstream, I was paired with Special Agent Dana Scully, who I believe was sent to spy on me, to debunk my investigations into the paranormal. That Agent Scully did not follow these orders is a testament to her integrity as an investigator, a scientist, and a human being. She has paid dearly for this integrity. Agent Mulder. Agent Scully lied straight face to this panel about your death. She lied because I asked her to. Because I had evidence of a conspiracy, a conspiracy against the American people. We've already heard testimony to these allegations, Agent Muller. And a conspiracy intended to destroy the lives of those who would reveal its true purpose. To conduct experiments on unwitting victims to further a secret agenda for someone within the government operating at levels without restraint or responsibility... Without morals or conscience, men who pretend to honor as they deceive the price of this betrayal, the lives and reputations of those deceived. Agent Scully is lying in a hospital bed right now, diagnosed with terminal cancer. The victim of these same tests conducted without her knowledge or consent. By these same men who as they try to cover their tracks, who suborn and persecute the same people they've used in their plot, I will now call by name.
0: Questioned by Blevins and the senior agent about whether he killed Osselhoff Mulder instead names Blevins as the traitor in the FBI. Agent Mulder, did you or did you not shoot the man found dead in your apartment? I will
1: answer that question, sir. Did you shoot Scott Oselhoff, employee of the Department of Defense? I will answer that question, sir. Answer the question asked, Agent Mulder. I will answer the question after I name the man. Agent Mulder. I will answer that question after I name the man who is responsible for Agent Scully. The same man who directed that my apartment be surveilled by the DOD. A man I want to see prosecuted for his crimes. ...who is sitting in this very room as I speak. Agent Mulder, the section chief has asked you a question you are going to answer. I can't do that, sir. You can and you will. I can't do that, sir, because the section chief is the man I'm about to name.
0: The smoking man looking at a picture of a young Mulder and Samantha... ...is shot by Quiet Willie. Blevins is killed by the senior agent in his office makes it appear like a suicide. At the hospital, Skinner meets with Mulder, telling him that the smoking man is dead, although his body was not found. Mulder admits that he guessed when he named Blevins, who Skinner reveals was on the payroll for Roush. Mulder tells Skinner that Scully's cancer has gone into remission. Smoking man is dead.
1: Shot through his window. Forensics found it at the scene. We're assuming it's his blood. Assuming? Well, no body was found, though there was too much blood loss for anyone to have survived. This afternoon when you named Blevins, how did you know? Who didn't, I just guess. Well, that's out of a guess. Blevins had been on payroll for four years to a biotechnology company called Roush, which is somehow connected to all this. I'm sure whatever connections there were, they're being erased right now. They're cleaning up, taking everything away. cancer has gone into remission that's unbelievable news it's the best news i could have ever heard what we'll turned it around i don't know i don't think we'll ever know can i see her yeah she's in there with her family right now but i'm sure she'd love to see you
0: And now for my field report for Redo 2. Redo 2 is probably even better than the first part. get a lot of shockers here with CSM getting shot, Blevins getting shot. We get to see what happens with Scully's cancer. So a lot of things are turning around in all different directions in this one. And I really like when we get to see the Consortium guys plotting behind, you know, closed doors so to speak but plotting how they're gonna basically run the world you just don't might not know it at that moment but you can see how each person in that consortium has specific people and situations to control and part of the conspiracy as we get to see with the smoking man controlling the fbi part of it and the Mulder family it's really cool we get to watch how that relationship develops with CSM and Mulder and that family and this is a great way to kick off season five which like I said before season five is considered by a lot of people if not most to be maybe the best season of the X-Files but certainly when it really takes off you get a lot of things happening you get to find a lot more about the plot and the mythology itself and it really starts getting good here so I love this episode I would definitely probably give it a 10 or You know, 9.5 if it's not perfect, but it's an excellent episode. On the Mythometer, obviously it's a mythology episode. And for the Sequelizer, same deal. It's part of the mythology, so it's obviously going to have a high potential for a sequel. Even though it seems like most of the plot lines in this one get wrapped up. But you'll see how they continue on. If you're a first-time viewer for The X-Files, you'll see how this continues on. And that kind of brings me to uh, recommend the Abduction series from The X-Files. It's just the mythology episodes, all condensed into, I think it's a four-volume set. So if you want to see the whole storyline with none of the Monster of the Week episodes in between, and just the storyline by itself, definitely check out the Abduction series. You can probably get it on eBay or anywhere like that. Probably get it cheap, too, because it's, you know, it's been out for a long time now. But any fan of The X-Files should definitely have that set. There's four different parts. I think they're called Abduction, Black Oil, colonization, and super soldiers. So go get those. (laughs) And I've talked enough. So let's head down to the chem lab now and see what Agent Angela has to say for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Redo 2.
1: This is Shane from the Red Dwarf Introcast, and you're listening to Ekvar's Truth. Chem Lab Analysis.
2: Hello, agents. I've been looking forward to Redo 2 for more than one reason. Not only is it intense, myth arc wise, it's full of tear jerking Mulder and Scully moments, starting with the cold open with the franticness of Mulder's search for Scully at the hospital after she collapsed from hypovolemic shock. He's got only that on his mind, refusing to calm down and demanding answers of the doctors who at first won't help. Could their silence have been bought by the syndicate perhaps? The only answers he gets are from Skinner, who delivers the blow that Scully's dying. Mulder loses it and gets in a scuffle with his immediate superior, unable to handle hearing those two words about the partner who's come to mean so much. I'd venture a positive guess that if their roles were reversed, if he had been the one dying of cancer, Scully would have reacted in much the same way. Not long after, he does get to see her, when she's awake. It's brief when he kisses her on the cheek, but it's enough to get a rise out of the even, even somewhat dedicated shippers, and I love Mulder's flippant but still sweet comment that he's officially back in the land of the living. And that's not all. Scully tries to convince him to let her take the fall for him, to tell the FBI panel that she killed the guy in apartment 42. She's willing to save him even if she lays dying. At least it'll give some meaning to what's happened to her. So she believes. Soon after, Mulder and the lone gunman uncover the microchip that was in the vial of deionized water. Maybe. They have hope. Back in the hospital. Scully wants to try the chip implant, despite her brother's tirade at Mulder and the admission of her doctor that they're going into unknown territory, medically. And Bill Mulder can't help himself on his way out of Scully's hospital room, has to get more digs in at Mulder and tell him exactly what he thinks of his quest for the truth. Both have lost family members to it, but they'll never have any common ground. And with Mulder, who cares what the reasons behind it are if the chip implant works? Mulder doesn't have long to ruminate on this, as the CSM brings him, who is supposedly a grown-up Samantha, who is apparently grown up with her memory wiped and believing a smoking man is her father, and she refuses to believe that the CSM may have been feeding her a bunch of lies all these years. Not the happy reunion I'm sure many of us were hoping for. Almost as heartbreaking as the thought of Mulder losing Scully. We can see that heartbreak written all over Mulder's face, even in the dark as the CSM drives away with his sister, once again. Mulder then gets offered a deal with the devil, quit the FBI and come work for the CSM, in exchange for many of the answers Mulder's been seeking. No deal. Of course not. Scully, meanwhile, has a tearful confession to her mother about how she's losing her faith and can't know for certain if everything she's ever believed in is, in fact, a lie. Later that night comes the biggest tear-jerking scene for me of the whole episode. Mulder cries while holding Scully's hand while she's asleep. Hard to get when that out of my head every time I see it. The next morning he's back and admitting that he was lost the night before, dangerously close to taking the deal with the syndicates. Not anymore, and he still won't let Scully take the fall. He couldn't live with himself if that happened. He'll begin her prayers as he squeezes her hand and gives her cheek another kiss before leaving for the hearing. At the panel, he calls out the section chief for Blevins' role in the conspiracy. Soon after, the CSM is apparently shot dead through his window, though no body was found. In the end, Scully's cancer goes into remission, the best news Mulder could have ever hoped for. Until next time, this is Agent Angela, of you names in the sky Counterintelligence. Inside Information.
3: This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence. With X5.2 Redo Part 2. Original air date November 9, 1997. Written by Chris Carter. Directed by Kim Manners. I'm offering you a chance to know the truth. Chris Carter, when talking about Redo and Redo 2, noted that he wanted to tie up a lot of loose ends from the past season and play the idea that the conspiracy is a hoax and that it had been done to hide various terrestrial and temporal misdeeds. Despite being the season premiere, Redo was the second episode produced of the season due to David Duchovny and Julian Anderson being needed for filming on the X-Files movie. In Redo 2, the role of Quiet Willie was originally intended for the character The Gray-Haired Man, but was rewritten for a new character when actor Morris Panch was unavailable. The role went to Willie Ross, whose real name is Steve Allen. Tagline for Redo is changed to All Lies Lead to the Truth. Director R.W. Goodwin has said the crew filming Redo were so impressed by actor John Finn's monologue detailed the supposed military hoax that he received a round of applause after finishing his takes. The script for this speech was particularly long, with Goodwin comparing it to the Yellow Pages. Redo 2 had four different storylines. Mulder's Quest, The Medical Treatment, Scully's Religious Faith, and The Smoking Man's Cure for Dana Scully's Cancer. It was normal for the writers to add one or two different storylines for the different episodes to create different interpretations, but Carter felt it took the idea of the show and spun it in the most interesting way. The episode also started what would become Fox Mulder's loss of belief in extraterrestrials until the episode The Red and the Black. While the writers kept playing with the idea of Mulder's loss of faith, fans and viewers could not grow to accept his loss of faith, which left The Smoking Man victorious. Redo 2 was highly praised by Carter, saying that I think that Redo 2 is one of the best episodes we've ever done. Frank Spotnitz said, Redo 2 is one of my favorite episodes. I think the story has a crystal purity and clarity and it just comes to a perfect point for me." Anderson said, I thought it was a terrific episode, especially the scenes in the hearing room and the whole progression of Scully praying, how it was written and shot and how it was edited. Fabulous. A whistleblower is a person who exposes any kind of information or activity that is deemed illegal, unethical, or not correct within an organization that is either private or public. The information of alleged wrongdoing can be classified in many ways. Violation of company policy and rules, law, regulation, or threat to public interest and national security, as well as fraud and corruption. Those who become whistleblowers can choose to bring information or allegations to surface either internally or externally. Internally, a whistleblower can bring his or her accusations to the attention of other people within the accused organization. Externally, a whistleblower can bring allegations to light by contacting a third party outside of an accused organization. Whistleblowers can reach out to the media, government, law enforcement, or those who are concerned, but also face stiff reprisal and retaliation from those who are accused or alleged of wrongdoing. Some third-party groups offer protection to whistleblowers, but that protection can only go so far. Whistleblowers face legal action, criminal charges, social stigma, and termination from any position, office, or job. Two other classifications of whistleblowing are private and public, the classifications relate to the type of organization someone chooses to whistleblow on, private sector, or public sector. Both can have different results that depend on many factors. However, whistleblowing in the public sector organization is more likely to result in federal felony charges and jail time. A whistleblower who chooses to accuse a private sector organization or agency is more likely to face termination in legal and civil charges. Deeper questions and theories of whistleblowing and why people choose to do so can be studied through an ethical approach. Whistleblowing is a topic of ongoing ethical debate. Leading arguments in the ideological camp that whistleblowing is ethical maintain that whistleblowing is a form of civil disobedience and aims to protect the public from government wrongdoing. In the opposite camp, some see whistleblowing as unethical for breaching confidentiality, especially in industries that handle sensitive client or patient information. Legal protection can also be granted to protect whistleblowers, but that protection is subject to many stipulations. Hundreds of laws grant protection to whistleblowers, but stipulations can easily cloud that protection and leave whistleblowers vulnerable to retaliation and legal trouble. However, the decision and action has become far more complicated with recent advancements in technology and communication. Whistleblowers frequently face reprisal, sometimes at the hands of the organization or group they have accused, sometimes from related organizations, and sometimes under law. Questions about the legitimacy of whistleblowing, the moral responsibility of it, and the appraisal of the institutions of whistleblowing are part of the field of political ethics. To be considered a whistleblower in the United States... Most federal whistleblower statutes require that federal employees have reason to believe their employer violated some law, rule, or regulation, testify, or commence a legal proceeding on the legally protected matter, or refuse to violate the law. In cases where whistleblowing on a specified topic is protected by statute, U.S. courts have generally held that such whistleblowers are protected from retaliation. However, a closely divided U.S. Supreme Court decision, Garcetti v. Savalos, held that the First Amendment free speech guarantees for government employees do not protect disclosures made within the scope of the employee's duties. In the United States, legal protections vary according to the subject matter of the whistleblowing, and sometimes the state where the case arises. In passing the 2002 Sarbanes-Oxley Act, the Senate Judiciary Committee found that whistleblower protections were dependent on the patchwork and vagaries of varying state statutes. Still, a wide variety of federal and state laws protect employees who call attention to violations, help with enforcement proceedings, or refuse to obey unlawful directions. The first U.S. law adopted specifically to protect whistleblowers was the 1863 United States False Claims Act, which tried to combat fraud by suppliers of the United States government during the Civil War. The act encourages whistleblowers by promising them a percentage of the money recovered by the government and by protecting them from employment retaliation. Another U.S. law that specifically protects whistleblowers is the Lloyd La Follette Act of 1912. It guaranteed the right of federal employers, employees to furnish information to the United States Congress. The first U.S. environmental law to include an employee protection was the Clean Water Act of 1972. Similar protections were included in subsequent federal environmental laws including the Safe Drinking Water Act, Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, Toxic Substances Control Act, Energy Reorganization Act, Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, and the Clean Air Act. Similar employee protections enforced through OSHA are included in the Surface Transportation Assistance Act to protect truck drivers in the Pipeline Safety Improvement Act, of 2002, the Wendell H. Ford Aviation Investment and Reform Act for the 21st Century, and the sarbanes oxley Act, enacted on July 30, 2002, for corporate fraud whistleblowers. Investigation of retaliation against whistleblowers under 20 federal statutes falls under the jurisdiction of the Office of the Whistleblower Protection Program of the United States Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. New whistleblower statutes enacted by Congress, which are to be enforced by the Secretary of Labor, are generally delegated by a Secretary's order to OSHA's Office of the Whistleblower Protection Program. The patchwork of laws means that victims of retaliation need to be aware of the laws at issue to determine the deadlines and means for making proper complaints. Some deadlines are as short as 10 days, while others are up to 300. Those who report a false claim against the federal government and suffer adverse employment actions as a result may have up to six years to file a civil suit for remedies under the U.S. False Claims Act. Under a key Tom provision, the original source for the report may be entitled to a percentage of what the government recovers from the offenders. However, the original source must also be the first to file a federal civil complaint for recovery of the federal funds fraudulently obtained and must avoid publicizing the claim of fraud until the U.S. Justice Department decides whether to prosecute the claim itself. Such lawsuits must be filed under seal using special procedures to keep the claim from becoming public until the federal government makes its decision on direct prosecution. The Espionage Act of 1917 has been used to prosecute whistleblowers in the United States, including Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. In 2013, Manning was convicted of violating the Espionage Act and sentenced to 35 years in prison for leaking sensitive military documents to WikiLeaks. That same year, Snowden was convicted for violating the Espionage Act for releasing confidential documents belonging to the NSA. Section 922 of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in the United States incentivizes and protects whistleblowers. By Dodd-Frank, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission financially rewards whistleblowers providing information that results in sanctions of at least $1 million. Additionally, Dodd-Frank offers job security to whistleblowers by illegalizing termination or discrimination due to whistleblowing. The whistleblower provision has proven successful after the enactment of Dodd-Frank, the SEC charged KBR with violating the Whistleblower Protection Rule 21F17, by having employee sign confidentiality agreements that threatened repercussions for discussing internal matters with outside parties. As of the recent election, President-elect Donald Trump has announced plans to dismantle Dodd-Frank, which may negatively impact whistleblower protection in the United States. As for now, I'd say this case is open, so the final word on Redo 2? Because I knew you'd talk me out of it if I was making a mistake. We both know That the harder we try
1: Can't understand it We're so caught up in the reasons why
2: Station to station And we
1: Empire. What's going on out there?
2: What's out there for Redo 2? First review I picked this time around is posted on the dailydrew.com. It reads Of the three episodes that comprise this story, going back to Gethsemane, the season four finale, this is easily the strongest. Perhaps coincidentally, and perhaps not, it's also barely connected to where this story began. The alien corpse discovered in the Yukons seems like it was a million years ago. There are connections, of course. The investigation into the death of Mulder is still going on, but it morphs into an investigation into Mulder for the murder of the guy who actually died. But there's a lot of new stuff, also, mainly the sudden return appearance of Samantha Mulder. Samantha's sudden return in this episode is entirely pointless, as far as I can tell. It's all part of a ridiculous scheme by the cigarette smoking man to convince Mulder to quit the FBI and start working for him. It could have been an interesting story on its own, but tacked onto this sprawling three-parter was a terrible error, in my view. This story doesn't really get into the development it needs in order to work, and it further shifts the focus of a story that's already unfocused to the point of utter incoherence. But taking just this episode in isolation, there's a lot of good in it, all but relating to Scully's cancer. Mulder gets a great scene with Scully's brother Bill, who is facing the prospect of losing another sister to Mulder's obsessions, which he can't hope to understand. It's a powerful scene. Scully's crisis of faith is also powerful, although I'm not really the right audience for that sort of thing. But everything else, not just in this episode, but in the whole three-part story, seems like a complete waste. What are we supposed to take away from all this? We've been given multiple conflict- conflicting explanations for various things, all from untrustworthy sources. What does that amount to, exactly? Why was any of this happening? I don't expect the show to ever reveal the answers to all of its mysteries, so that's not what I'm expecting from this episode, either. But after three episodes of convoluted plotting, I don't have any idea what actually happened, or why it's important. What the hell have I been watching? (laughs) Scully's cancer has gone into remission. That at least is concrete. Although we don't know if it's because of the chip that was implanted into her neck to replace the one that was previously implanted during her Season 2 abduction. It might have been a result of the conventional treatment she was undergoing. It might have been a miracle. Or it might be that cancer that just does that sometimes. Other than that, we're still in exactly the same place we were before all this started. Mulder believes Scully has doubts, Skinner is their ally. Okay, fine, let's get on with some actual stories then. Far as my two cents, I think this review has a good point that Scully's crisis of faith is one of the best, and one of the most emotional scenes in this episode. I do have to disagree that the appearance of who Mulder thinks is Samantha is pointless. Even if she's only part of the larger, sinister plots of the Syndicate, I've got to say it's a big twist, to me anyway. All the more heartbreaking is the fact that grown-up Samantha wants nothing to further to do with the Mulder family now, having had her memory wiped of most of her early life with them. makes me heartache all that more for Mulder as if he hasn't been dealing with enough already, facing the prospect of losing Scully. Up next comes from the Review Is Out There blog. It reads in part, Redo 2 is just about as perfect an episode of television as it's possible to be. Whenever I hear complaints about the X-Files, worried rumors about the upcoming revival, whenever I ruminate on mistakes made in later seasons and mourn the loss of scenes and ideas that could have been, I turn on this episode and my doubts vanish. Or, perhaps, better put, I am able to feel good about the future of my show because I know that somewhere, the thoughts and ideas that produce this masterpiece are still swirling around in Chris Carter's head. If Gethsemane was setting up this spiritual crisis for Mulder, and redo was explaining the nitty-gritty plot details behind this crisis, Redo 2 is the episode where it brings everything home. Mulder's crisis self-belief and doubt isn't resolved, but he realizes there's something far more important to him something he's about to lose. As we've seen in the past, Mulder is willing to trade almost anything if it means saving Scully. You might remember similar behavior in One Breath, during which Mulder worked tirelessly to save a dying Scully, but was forced to face his own feelings regarding the matter. Redo 2 is similar, but it's different in several ways. First of all, Mulder's very clear on his feelings regarding Scully, and he says so in the opening scene. Secondly, where One Breath was about Scully but still very much Mulder's story, in Redo 2, Scully faces her own spiritual crisis as well. Literally, there is apparently more controversy than I thought surrounding Scully's religious background among fans. Something I was surprised and rather disappointed to see. I suppose that's a problem in our society as well. It's hard to imagine how someone so scientific could also be religious. Scully, too, seems to have a difficult time reconciling the two. While we never really see any specifics concerning Scully's religious beliefs like we do her scientific ones, we do see her driven to a point where logical, scientific thought can't be her guiding light anymore, as she monologued in Redo. It's not clear in what way Scully relies on her Catholic faith beyond prayer, but I don't think the episode is trying to relay some grand Christian message. Rather, Scully's journey here is all about finding another source of strength that may not follow your natural instincts. Even more so, it's about reevaluating the entire concept of faith. Scully has faith. She just expresses it through science, not in spite of it. The interactions between Mulder and Scully in this episode are both wonderful and heartbreaking. Wonderful because they show a display of intimacy that will warm the cockles of even the most stoic shipper's heart and heartbreaking because Scully's literally on her deathbed, just like in one breath. Except this time, she can talk. The dying Scully is only concerned for Mulder and his upcoming hearing. She's worried that they'll prosecute him because of the dead man in his apartment, and even as she's lying there dying, even as she's going through both physical and spiritual torment, she tells him this. I can't, I can't do that.
1: Yes, you can. If I could save you, let me. Let me at least give some meaning to what's happened to me.
2: Final score for Redo is 10 out of 10. I think this is the point in the show where the viewer starts to realize that you're not really watching a show about aliens. You're watching a love story. It's not even a romantic one yet, but it is about love. Redo 2 captures everything that gives this show its heart. It's not the aliens, it's not the conspiracies, it's Mulder and Scully and the love they have for one another. So what do I think? I'm very glad I found this review. The very end of it says it all, and I couldn't agree more. So many wonderful yet heartbreaking moments that demonstrate that love between Mulder and Scully, with no room for doubt. And yeah, it doesn't even need to be romantic for it to be so obvious how important they've become to each other. Be sure to check out links to both these reviews on the show notes page. My final word on Redo 2? I'm only half dead. Profiles.
1: But these aren't humans, but.
2: Profiles and character. From a look they were alien.
3: This week's profile, the upcoming look at season five. From Hits and Myths, as a prime mover behind the X-Files mythology, writer-producer Frank Spotnitz prepares to take the show to the next level. Frank Spotnitz is quotable, no need for an interviewer to parry and counterattack in an effort to pull more than a yes or a no out of him, no need to trawl through reams of transcripts for that one moment of clarity, ask him a question, any question, about himself, the X-Files, feature film, old movies, and he takes it seriously. His answers are thoughtful, articulate, quotable. There's a reason Spotnitz is so adept at giving good quotes. He spent ten years chasing them. Before launching his television career, the X-Files producer was a journalist reporting on everything from house fires to presidential politics for UPI and the Associated Press. But Stotnitz, a hardcore movie fan since childhood, just couldn't keep his head in the news game. He eventually packed his bags and headed to Los Angeles, the citadel of commercial moviemaking. Supporting himself with freelance work for Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly, Spottinus practiced the art of screenwriting at the American Film Institute and began making the rounds with his spec scripts. His days of struggle were short, however, his big break, joining the X-Files writing staff in the second season, and quickly becoming the show's resident mythology maker. With series creator Chris Carter, Spotnitz co-wrote Colony and Endgame, Piper Maru and Apocrypha, and Tunguska and Terma. In Season 4, while holding down his spot on the X-Files writing and producing team, Spotnitz also lent a hand to Carter's Millennium as that show's co-executive producer. For Season 5, Spotnitz will focus solely on the X-Files as a writer slash co-executive producer. But he's playing a leading role as both a writer and producer of the television and co producer of the upcoming feature film. Some excerpts from a Spotness interview in regards to season five. Tell us a little about the seven new writers on the staff. We have a really interesting and good group. There's traditionally a high turnover on the X Files writing staff because it's a very difficult show. But I'm very optimistic for the group we have this year, they're all hard at work on their stories right now. Which writers have left the show? The only returning writers this year besides Chris and me are Vince Gilligan and John Scheiben. Were you happy with season 4? I was pretty happy with the season as a whole, I thought it took a lot of really interesting and unexpected directions. The highlight of the season for me was Memento Mori because it synthesized so many other episodes and brought together a lot of elements in the mythology in a single episode. It was a very simple story despite the fact that it pulled together all these different strands of the continuing narrative. And it was a very emotional story. I thought it was a wonderful episode for David and Jillian, so I was really pleased with that. I thought Vince Gilligan did some of his best work. Paper hearts and small potatoes were both terrific. I thought the season finale was really, really strong. I loved its originality for the series. For as many cliffhangers as we've done, it was completely different and I just loved the ideas in that show. The search for proof of extraterrestrial life versus search for proof of the existence of God and how the two are actually analogous. I thought Morgan and Wong did a beautiful job with Home. I thought that was a very scary, strong, standalone episode. Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man was a really bold and ultimately successful experiment. To expose so much of that character, I should say expose in quotation marks because we don't really know if that's history, it's all according to Frohickey. That was really a brave thing to do. He's such an important part of the show and so much of his allure lies in his mystery. So those were some of the highlights, I thought. What weren't you pleased with? There were a couple of episodes that I thought weren't fully realized, and I hate to name them because I don't want to point fingers, but that almost always happens. There's almost always one that you just wish you could have had another week to work on so you could have done a better job. There were a couple toward the middle and late into the season that I didn't think were as good as they could have been and should have been. I've got to say, though, that as good as it was the first season, and I still think some of our best episodes were done the first season, the show's gotten better every year. It's gotten more sophisticated, more ambitious. We've worked hard not to repeat ourselves. I just think it's one of those rare shows that has continued to grow and I expect the same will be true in Season 5. Do you want to take the show in a new direction this year? Actually, it's not so much a new direction as a solidifying of the ideas in the storyline that we've already set up. We've reached this really nice point in the life of the series where we've got a very full universe and the thing we want to do now is explore those ideas That universe, more deeply, just as we did with Memento Mori, which didn't really enlarge the conspiracy or the ideas we'd put forth already so much as deepen them. That's what we're going to do this year. Things like Scully's health, whether the cigarette-smoking man is Mulder's father, the role of Marita Kurovarubias as a turncoat. There's a lot of things we've set up, and I think we'll just explore those deeper. And there's a lot of things that we've hinted at in the past, questions that we're going to pick up and answer, all in preparation for the feature. And that's a wonderful thing too. We know where we're going at this point. We know what our season finale is going to be this year. We know what the Cliffhanger is going to be and we know what's going to happen in the movie. So it gives us a very clear sense of direction. Having said all that, yet only applies to the continuing storyline. The mythology shows most of our episodes are still standalones. A goal for the standalones is the same to make them as scary and intense as we possibly can. Chris Carter once said that X-Files is about the stories more than it's about the characters. Do you think that's changed? I don't, actually. The truth is, we are very plot-driven and we spend a great deal of time making sure that our plots advance, that every piece of information pushes forward another piece of information, and that the stories have a symmetry and ideas come around and make a full circle by the end of the episode. And Mulder and Scully drive the plots forward and their competing views of the world are really what make the stories go. But by and large, the stories aren't about them, it's their attitudes that expose what's going on, but they're rarely very personal. And if you think about it, we actually know very little about them or their private lives. And I think this is true as we go into our fifth season, there are going to be more episodes where you will get more of a glimpse of their private lives. We'll learn more about Mulder's mother because it tells us something about the conspiracy or about Cigarette Smoking Man or Mulder's ailing abduction memories concerning Samantha. We never are melodramatic simply to be melodramatic. Everything's in service to the story. After four seasons, is it going to be hard to keep those stories fresh? I think we're always forcing ourselves to be imaginative so we don't repeat ourselves, and that does get harder as the show matures. We've done so many things now, and there's so many situations we've explored, so many fears we've found ways to dramatize in these episodes, but on the other hand, one of the beauties of the show, and part of the genius of its conception, is that anything can be scary. Really, if it weren't for the fact that all of us would physically collapse, I truly believe you could keep doing X-Files episodes forever because it's limitless. We've had everything from lightning to bugs to worms to buildings as villains. Everything in the world can be scary. We take things from everyday life and make them scary. Because it's a familiar to you, you find what's scary about it, and it's going to affect you more deeply. That is Frank Spotnitz's look at what we, as viewers and listeners, can look forward to upcoming in this fifth season of The X-Files. <laughs>
1: Checked your email?
0: I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela.
2: Hi, everyone. First up, we got a couple of questions emailed in to me from Agent Barry. The first one is Are there any old X Files websites you still visit? Me personally, the only older one I visit every so often is December Lady anymore. I've always loved the site owners Mulder and Scully artwork. It's still so beautiful after all these years, and her collages are a lovely time capsule of this fandom over the past 16 or so years. Also on a rare occasion, I'll drop by eatthecoran.com just to see what's new. Both links will be posted on the show notes page. And the second question he submitted was, what do you feel is the biggest misconception about or criticism directed at the show? Well, that's a tough one. I've heard a lot of criticisms of both the X-Files Mythos and the Monster of the Week episodes over the years, so it's tough to pick just one. Plenty of fans, myself included, enjoy and keep coming back for the long, arching Mythos that's still not over, as of the Revival. But the Mythos also gets increasingly complex, convoluted, and sometimes can go in circles, according to some. And I think at times those critics have a point. Also, some see the Monster of the Week episodes as throwaway ones, and yet some yeah, some leave a lot to be desired, but a whole lot of others are examples of amazing TV writing and can be taken on their own terms. So, I'm putting this out to you, the audience. How about you? Any older X-Files sites you still visit? And what do you think is the biggest criticism the series has gotten over the years? Shoot us an email at xfilestruth at live.com, or tweet us or comment on our Facebook page or our website. Let us know what you think. And we got an awesome mention on Twitter from John David Evans at Evans83J. It was directed at the XCast. It said, keep up the good work. It's hard to find good X-Files podcasts. There's yours and X-Files Truth that are the good ones out there. That's amazing to hear. Thank you. We sure will keep up the good work on the X-Files until the very end, whenever that may be. Until next time, the truth is still out there people, go find it.
3: an important chunk of X-Files prehistory, up-and-coming FBI agent Mulder crosses paths with an unlikely trio of eccentrics, pursues a beautiful alleged terrorist, and gets a searing glimpse into his own future.
0: File for Redo 2 and I love how they left it open with Cigarette Smoking Man disappearing after he got shot so another open end from the X-Files, I love it but that's it for the Mythology episodes for a little bit remember to take the time to tell us what you think about the episodes or how we're doing or whatever you want at the website or all the contact info that Agent Angela gave you we love hearing from you guys, especially if you send in an audio file if you guys want to record yourself on an MP3 or whatever, and we'll uh, we'll play your file if you send it in to us. You can just attach it as a file and send it to the xfilestruth@live.com email address. But that about does it for this month, and we'll see you guys next month for Unusual Suspects. Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th Century Fox.
3: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?